Okay, friends, the story begins. We are on page 62. We're continuing our discussion about the prayers recited when taking out the Torah from the Ark. And um, on the top of page 62, the Chazin says, Godlu Lashem Iti Exalt the Lord with me. Let us extol his name together. This is what the Chazan says when taking the Torah out of the Ark. One of the older commentaries on the Siddur, known as the Abu Daram, say that six times fast. Abu Daram. Rav Avram, I think his name is, no, Rav David Abu Daram. He was a, a Sephardic, I think he lived in the Arabian countries. He was an Arab. No, he was a Sephardic um, uh, commentator. And he wrote a commentary on the Siddur. And he writes that there's six words in this verse. This is a verse taken from Psalms, from Tehillim. We'll talk about the context soon. There's six words. The six words, what's significant about six? So the book of Samuel says that when they were carrying the Ark, the covenant, there were six people holding it. Six people from the tribe of Levi holding that ark. So that's the that's the resemblance of six. When we're taking the Torah out of the ark, it's as if the ark of the covenant is right there, which hadn't at the Torah. It's a very special moment. It's a very sacred moment. We're reliving history at that moment. Let's dive in to the context of this biblical verse that we recite. Okay, if you see at the end of the verse, it says, exalt the Lord is with me and let him let us extol his name together. If you see both on the English and the Hebrew side, there's a little tiny one there. See that number one? Where does that take us? It takes us down all the way to the book of Psalms. And if you happen to have Psalms with you, I encourage you to open it up. If you don't have it with you, um, you know, it's all good. <laughs> but if you look on the book of Psalms, hold on, I'm opening it up right here as we speak. I, I just want to clarify, is that a one or a four? Where? You're, you're talking about the footnote? Footnote. Footnote number one. Because you said exalt. Oh, wait. Are you in the top of the page? Um. I was looking at the middle of the... Oh, I see. The very first... Okay, got it. Well, sorry, what, what... I was looking in the paragraph where it also says exalt. Oh, I see. Okay, sorry about that. So if you look in the book of Psalms, it tells us... Um, we're missing a little background information, but what is the book of Psalms? Let's take a step back here. Book of Psalms are King David's praises to God. Now, the truth is, it, it wouldn't be honest to say that the entire book was authored by King David. But um, a chunk of it is King David's praises to God. And in, traditionally, when Jews find themselves in a very tight spot and they need to pray, and you're looking for language to pray to God, we use Tehillim. We use the Book of Psalms for that. One of the reasons is because King David 
was had this incredible ability to maintain faith in very dire and difficult situations. To maintain joy, to maintain his belief in God in very difficult and dire situations. Um, for much of King David's life, he was being pursued. People were trying to kill him. They didn't like him. And it came to a point where he was hiding in the king of the Philistines' palace. The Philistinian, Philistine, not to be conclude, con, not to be confused with the Palestinian nation. There was the Philistines, the Pelishtim. And King David was hiding in their palace, and there was their king, Avimelech. And Avimelech discovers King David and wants to summon him so he can take it to the next steps, as we say. And here's what King David does. He plead, he, he, he gives off this impression that he is mentally incompetent. And with that, he's able to just run out and they just leave him alone. They don't want to deal with him. King David did a brilliant escape. And he praises God on his way out. Take a look at uh, chapter 34 of Psalms. I'm sorry we don't have it in the sitter book and I didn't tell you to bring it. But if you have it with you, great. If not, not. Um, and we, by the way, we may have different translations, so whatever. Um, of David, when he feigned madness in the presence of Avimelech, who turned him out and left. Right. So this is a psalm, a praise that King David said when he um pleaded as if he were mad. I bless the Lord at all times. Praise Him is ever in my mouth. I'm always praising Him with my mouth. So David Abel is on the run for his life. People want to kill him. I always praise God. This is amazing. I always praise him with my mouth. I glo I, I'm reading a very old translation, but I glory in the Lord. I find glory in God. In, in God. Let the lowly, lowly hear it and rejoice, even when we're humble. You know, King David has been humbled and he's feeling joy. He's feeling joy in God. Exalt the Lord with me. Let us extol his name together. That's the context of this verse. Good. The context of this biblical verse that we say when taking out the Torah. King David on the run. For his life. Praising God. So now plug this back into our context. We're sitting in Shul. And maybe we're going through a hard time. Maybe we have our challenges. Maybe it's people trying to kill us. Never thought I'd say that. Um, maybe it's a little bit more of a mellow challenge. But we all have our challenges. But when we take out the Torah, we recite this verse. It's the reminder. Exalt the Lord with me. Exalt the Lord with me and let us extol his name together it's a reminder when we see that torah to be that we have a sense of comfort we have a sense of strength now i'm gonna i'm gonna go to the hebrew side i'd like to read this in hebrew because as you know translations don't always do justice there's another way to read this godlu which means to exalt make great from the word gadol La Hashem to God. 
E.T. with me, right? Exalt God with me. King David's inviting everybody to praise God with him. There's another way to read this. Praise God or exalt God because he's with me. E.T. This God is with me. Exalt this God who is with me. That's what King David is saying. Not that King David's inviting everybody. Exalt God with me. Exalt God who is with me. What is our reminder that God is with me? The Torah. When we see the Torah, what we should be remembering is that God is with us because the Torah is not just a history book of the Jewish people as if it were like another form of Josephus or something. The Torah are God's values. The way we carry God with us is through the Torah. In fact, you have a mitzvah, the 613th mitzvah in the Torah, the last mitzvah in the Torah. You know what that is? You know what the last mitzvah is? Or maybe the second to last. Writing a Sefer Torah. Every individual, we mentioned this last week, I think, right? We mentioned something about writing a Torah. I don't know. Every individual has an obligation to write a Torah. Now, we may not all be able to do that in the literal sense. I know I can't. I don't have the skills, training, or knowledge to be a scribe. Um, but there's different ways to fulfill that mitzvah. There's purchasing a letter in the Torah. There's buying Jewish books and studying the Torah. Or you could buy a Torah. Right? There's many ways to fulfill this mitzvah. But here's something interesting. What precedes this mitzvah? You know what precedes this mitzvah? A warning. A warning in the Torah. Now, if we don't shape up, God says, If we don't shape up, God is going to hide himself. Do you remember that from the Torah? From the last part of the Torah, or almost the second to last part of the Torah, or the third to last part, fine. It's towards the end of the Torah. Parshas Vayelech. God says, if you don't shape up, I'm going to hide myself. And then he tells us a mitzvah about writing a, a Torah. Here's how you find God when he's hidden. When you feel like God is absent from, when we feel that God is absent from our lives, we feel that he's missing. We feel that he's took a step back and all hell breaks loose. Remember that we have a mitzvah to write a Torah. We have an avenue which, with, with which to find him. We have the ability to find God. And that's the Torah. The Torah comes out of the ark and we say, God, Lula, Hashem, exalt God. E.T., he is with me. And like King David, we may be in a very difficult or dire situation. But if we're pulling out that Torah, we will remember that God is with me. And if we want to feel that God is with me, we have to study the Torah. I'll tell you a story I just heard yesterday. There was a rabbi going back uh, many, many decades ago named Rabbi Posner. 
Rabbi Posner was a shliach, an emissary of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson. The, the Rebbe had this whole, um, let me take a step back here. The Rebbe had this whole movement of sending out shluchim, right? To the point that it, it took wildfire. You have 5,000 plus Chabad rabbis, crazy people, <laughs> moved to the middle of wherever to bring the joy and beauty of, of, of Judaism. The previous Lubavitch Rebbe actually sent out shluchim. It just wasn't as popular of a thing to do. He sent out about nine shluchim. You're going to go to Canada. You're going to go to... <laughs> and there was only nine of them. So this is real grassroots. So they each got an entire continent. Something like that. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot of work. I mean, that, that's how it was back in the day. You know, as Chabad has grown, we've <laughs> zoned in on, on more specific communities. <clears throat> Rabbi Kunin, for example... Who's the um he oversees all the Chabads in California? He was sent to California. <laughs> You'll be the Shliach in California, you know. And he um he he did a lot of outsourcing to which is good. So Rabbi Posner though was a was a yeshiva student. And the previous Rebbe sent him and a friend from America to travel to Europe post-World War II. And to go to a DP camp, visit DP camps, and you're there for one purpose, to uplift the spirits of the Jewish people there. And to show them that Judaism is not extinct despite the atrocities that had just occurred post-World War II and post-Holocaust. So these guys would walk around with you know, their kippah and their beard and they would look the part. And their job was just to uplift people and say, wow, there's still Jews that are living this and that they're happy and they're joyous and that they're learning and they're davening and they're praying and they're involved and they're doing mitzvahs. Their job is just to be an example and a role model of a positive Jew in a very difficult situation or post-difficult situation. That was their job, to inspire. They visit this hospital or infirmary or for something and there's an elderly fellow studying Talmud. And they were surprised to see that. They didn't expect that. They thought they were there to inspire. Turns out they were inspired. This elderly fellow is studying Talmud. Now here's the kicker. He was studying Talmud by heart because he didn't have a book. He was just reviewing. Now the, the truth is, put this in brackets, right now for somebody to know the whole Talmud by heart is, is exceptional and rare. Um, I, w I don't want to say it was common, but it certainly wasn't uncommon pre World War pre pre World War Two, especially World War One. It wasn't um wasn't that uncommon. I'm not going to say it was common, but it certainly wasn't rare. This guy was studying the Talmud by heart, and these students are just like, "Wow, you just survived, you know, gone through what you've gone through," and. How do you have the energy, the passion, the headspace, the heart to study Talmud, which is difficult on its own and certainly by heart? He says, when I was a kid, World War One, <laughs> we had to um, we had to hide. 
And I was hiding in an attic with a bunch of yeshiva students. And these yeshiva students had their books with them. And there was a fellow there who valued studying so much. He valued these boys learning so much. He told them, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to find for you whatever you need. I'm going to provide for you all of your needs. Study, learn. And under the most difficult and pressing situations, these young boys would just learn. And with that, they were able to gain spiritual strength and survive and cope with these atrocities. When life is difficult, when life is challenging, we turn to prayer, we turn to God, we beg God from the depths of our heart. We also turn to the Torah for a sense of comfort and a sense of strength. That's our strength as Jewish people. That's our spiritual airstrike when we study Torah. We take out the Torah from the ark and we say, God, Lu, La Hashem, Hashem is great, Eti, He's with me. Just like he was with King David. And King David was able to recognize that. Amidst atrocity, amidst people trying to kill him, we recognize people, are, we recognize Hashem is great. Amidst difficult situations. And that's through the Torah. The Torah is our source of that strength. Okay. That is the first half of what we're going to discuss tonight. Any questions, comments, thoughts, reflections? Controversy. Okay, we're going to skip a little bit. If you could please skip to page 65. Um, page 65, bottom of the page. Raising the Torah, Hagba. So here's there's a tradition, a custom to raise the Torah, lift it up. Right after we read the Torah, we unroll it and we, Torah, this is the Torah. Which, by the way, you want to know something interesting? There's different traditions as to when we raise the Torah. Originally, the tradition was to raise the Torah prior to the Torah reading. And in Sephardic tradition, they still do that. You're about to start reading the Torah. Let's show it to everybody. We'll discuss soon why we show it to everybody. In Ashkenaz tradition, you know how it works? And Ash Ashkenazis are a little, uh, little less patient. Oh, I saw the Torah. Okay, I can go home now. <laughs> I don't have to stick around to read it. <laughs> so they would, um, so they would read it first and then actually raise it. That became the tradition in Ashkenazi communities. Um, but actually, what I've seen in Sephardic communities is, uh, I think this is, just, have you guys ever prayed in a Sephardic shul before? Once, okay. So I've seen two different things in different shuls. Um, some open up, they open up the ark, they take the Torah out, they bring it to the bima, then they raise it. And in some communities, they open the Torah while it's in the ark. They lift it from the ark and they walk down the aisle till the bima with it open. 
and they do hagba. That's how they do hagba. They'll come down the aisle holding it open. Now, a Sephardic Torah is not like an Ashkenaz Torah that is convenient to hold. It's a very awkward. Yeah, it's like the cylinder. So it's very awkward to hold it. So they have to like, there's two ways to do it. Either you have to hold it like this, like, open. you know, it's a cylinder that it opens. It's like my model of a cylinder. <laughs> it's, it's like a cylinder that opens up and splits in half. So you either have to grab it by the sides or if it's really heavy, you hold it by the bottom. And, and that could be quite challenging. But what's the source for this? What's the reason for this? So there's an explanation from the Ramban, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, not to be confused with the Rambam, Moshe ben Maimon, Nachmanides. And here's what Nachmanides explains. Parsha, let's let's zoom back, scroll, um, rewind to Parsha's Kisavoy, Kitavo, where there is a long laundry list of curses and threats from God. Do you remember that Parsha? Right? It's a heavy Parsha, heavy statements to the point that we don't even call anybody up for that Aliyah. We just, you know, whoever, whoever happens to be reading the Torah reads it in an undertone. We don't even call them up because we don't want to call somebody up for curses. Um, you, you know, the joke where they, there was a certain shul, they would, they would pay like the schlepper who didn't have a job, you know, the beggar in the back, they would pay him to get that Aliyah because nobody wanted it. <laughs> And they're waiting for the elite. They're waiting for the tour. the tour reading starts and the guy's not there. Okay, we'll start without him. It's the sixth Aliyah. We got a little bit of time. The sixth Aliyah comes and he's not there. They're waiting. They're waiting. They're waiting. Finally, the guy comes in shul and he's huffing and puffing and sweating. And they say, where were you? We're waiting for you. He says, I got a lot of shuls to go. Do you think I can make money off one? Uh... <laughs> you know, I got to get around. Okay, so these are these are intimidating curses. And one of those curses is, I'm going to read it in Hebrew and I'll translate it. Arur, asher lo yakim et divrei hazot. Cursed is he who does not uphold the words of this Torah. If you don't uphold or keep this Torah, that's a curse. Now the Ramban points out though, that we're not talking about necessarily fulfilling every single command to the T, that you're a you get a curse if you don't do that. That's not what it's saying. It's talking about more in one's heart. If one doesn't uphold the whole Torah in their heart. You know, this part I like, but this part that we can can that it's not as interesting or it's not as meaningful to me. I don't believe that. So if we're emotionally disconnected from any part of the Torah, we're not upholding it. The result of that is a curse. That's what the Ramban says. A Jew has to believe in the whole Torah. Every single part of Torah. Maimonides points this out in, again, this is a commentary in the Torah, but Maimonides points out in his book of Jewish law that if one, if somebody believes that any part of the Torah is not from Sinai and man-made, it's heresy. So the Ramban says that's what it's referring to. In order to get people to value or, or to, to believe in the Torah, Part of that is valuing the Torah, respecting the Torah. And that starts with physically lifting it up. Cursed is the person who does not uplift the Torah. It means to uplift it emotionally, but we also up, we also practice that physically. We lift up the Torah. And now everybody has to raise their eyes and go through this motion of looking up to the Torah, of honoring the Torah. And when we honor the Torah, we value the Torah. 
It's an important lesson in life. If you want to value some someone, try honoring them. We often think, why would I honor them? I don't value them. Well, try the other way around. <laughs> try honoring them. Maybe you'll value them. Right? We honor what we value. We we value, sorry, what we honor. Right? The 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 heart and the wallet are very much connected. Not only our wallet, but whatever however we honor it. We honor the Torah. We lift up the Torah. We look at the Torah. And now we're honoring and valuing the Torah. What do we recite when we look at the Torah? So, for, uh, first of all, it's important to a couple of things, a couple of things. Number one, when we look at the Torah and we look at the columns of the Torah, there is a tradition to raise the pinky. Have you heard of that before? You know where it comes from? You know why? It, it Nobody knows where it comes from. It's a, um, it, there's no source for it. You won't find it in any sitter, and you won't find it in any book, which is an interesting thing. It's one of those things that crept in uh, to, to Yiddishkeit, but um, has no source for it. And m many say that it's not a Jewish thing, even, that it's just, uh, there's, there's no real source for it. I thought only Sephardim do that. Um, many people do it. I've seen, I, I don't know if I've ever been to a show where I haven't seen people doing it. You know, it's, it's funny because like I do that, you know, during the Zot HaTorah, right? Um, and I don't know when I started or where I picked it up from. So it's it, seat seat too, right? What? They hold a seat seat while doing it. Some, yeah. some people did, but, but there's no official, it's not documented to do that anywhere. Hmm. It, it's, not everybody knows that it, it's it's um it, it's an interesting thing, but I'll tell you why that custom probably developed. If I were to speculate, there is a custom. What you're supposed to do is actually look at the Torah. You're supposed to look at the letters of the Torah, and to the point that some people, if they're too far, they'll actually walk over to the Torah during the raising of the Torah, so they can actually see the letters and glance at the letters. You're supposed to glance at the letters. So my guess is that evolved into pointing to it. Or maybe somebody would point to it and, you know, everybody saw this. You know, the famous joke of um, the, the this lady would always cut the edges of her brisket off. She says, that's what my grandmother does. So they asked the grandmother, why do you cut the edges of your brisket off? That's what my grandmother did. So they go to the great, great grandmother, who's like 150 years old. <laughs> and they track her down. Why do you cut the edges of your brisket off? What is this family tradition? What is the meaning? What is the significance behind it? She says, my oven was too small. <laughs> Right, so some sometimes we see somebody doing something, and it might be more logistical than spiritual. Well, I'll I'll add to your theory. Um, I'm I'm nearsighted, so sometimes in order to see things far away, I've found that I can cut my fingers a little bit and then like hold, and then I can see. So maybe somebody nearsighted was doing that, and then interesting. <laughs> That's actually you know that could be that that's definitely plausible. That's definitely plausible. Um, you're you're supposed to so you're supposed to look at the Torah. You're supposed to glance at the letters of the Torah. And interesting debate, by the way. I was just reading this this morning when preparing. Do you have to look at the words that you were reading, or just look at any words? So some say 
you can I'll tell you where this is a practical difference. Let's say we were reading the first couple of parshas where everything now everything is on the left uh, is on the left side or towards the end of the Torah everything's on the right side. Are you allowed to roll it to the middle so you could lift it safely, right? And many maintain um, that you can read. Many maintain that you can roll to the middle, and as long as you're looking at any of the letters, that's fine. It doesn't have to be the letters that you necessarily just read. And and definitely that's the thing to do when in cases of safety where it's all on one side and you might not balance it properly. The Sifse Kohen. Sifse Kohen is a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. I'm gonna guess that he lived about three hundred between three and four hundred years ago. The commentary on the Shulchan Aruch of Jewish law. He also wrote a commentary on the Parsha called Shach Al HaTorah or Sivsikon Al HaTorah. I bet we learned all about that in our JLI class, didn't we? We, we probably did. Yeah, I wasn't paying attention to that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so he says, why do you have to look at the Torah? Why are you supposed to look at the letters? The answer is each letter in the Torah represents a Jew. Every Jew has a letter in the Torah. You're supposed to have a letter in the Torah, right? Written for you. You're supposed to buy a letter in the Torah. Besides for fulfilling the commandment of writing a Torah, every Jew represents a, is represented by a letter in the Torah. Every Jew is relevant in Judaism. What happens if you have one missing letter? It's not a kosher Torah. What happens if you have a, all the letters, but one of the letters are scratched off or not kosher? The Torah is not kosher. The entire Torah is dependent on every individual letter. The entire Torah is dependent, the entire Judaism is dependent on every single Jew. There's no such thing as a Jew who is unimportant. Like, like the famous, there was there was somebody, there was a rabbi. I'm, I'm butchering the story. This is a great story, but I'm butchering it, so I apologize. The, the Rebbe inspired this guy. I forgot who it was. And he wrote a letter to the Rebbe saying, thank you so much for uplifting a small Jew. And the Rebbe's response was, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as a small Jew. Each and every one of us are a letter in that Torah. Which means that Torah being valid is dependent on every single one of us. The, the, your Chabad rabbi or any Chabad rabbi or any Chabad person or anybody who had learned Chabad Hasidic teachings. You don't have to be a rabbi. Anybody who learned the Tanya will never accept the excuse of I'm not religious so it's not for me. <laughs> Right, I'm not observant, so it's not for me. I didn't grow up that way, so it's not for me. Um, it is for you. You have a soul. Mr. Sammy Roar, or maybe George Roar, one of the Roar, Mr. Roars, was a big, um, was a big uh, contributor to Chabad and still is a big contributor to Chabad and had a very close relationship with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And used to run a minion for beginners, a beginner's minion in Manhattan every Shabbos. And people that were relatively new in, as far in their Jewish education were would, would come and, and learn, learn how to daven. And it was like a Chabad house. And he wrote to the Rebbe that we have this beautiful, you know, he's giving like a report. We have this beautiful minion for people that have no background in Judaism expecting a that's beautiful like 
you're educated. The Rebbe said, there's no such thing. They all have a background in Judaism. No, they, they, they don't. They don't have a background in Judaism. Of course they do. Each one of the, each and every one of them are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course they have a background in Judaism. They may not have an education in Judaism, and you're there to provide that, but they certainly have a background. As Jews, we all have a background in Judaism. It's part of who we are. It's ingrained in us. You can't run away from it. It just doesn't work. We can't hide from it. It doesn't work. And, we're, and, and what's supposed to inspire us, to remind us of that, that's when we glance at the Torah and we lift it up. And what do we recite when lifting up the Torah? We recite this paragraph here, but I'm, I'd like to zone in just on the first sentence. This is the Torah which Moses placed before the children of Israel. In the Hebrew, Vizot HaTorah. This is the Torah. Asher Sam Moshe that Moshe placed Lifnei in front of or before B'nai Israel. There's a teaching, a beautiful teaching from the Maharal of Prague, Rabbi Hudalau of Prague, from the 15th century Kabbalist and philosopher. And here's what he explains. What does that mean Moses placed it before the children of Israel? Why not? He gave it to the children of Israel. He placed it before them like, he gave us the Torah, just be simple. Why? He placed it before them like, here you go. I've placed the Diet Coke before you. Like, who talks like that? Why is it speaking so fancy? So the Maharal explains that God gives us the Torah, but he places it before us. We have to decide whether we want it or not. We have to decide whether we're going to take it or not. Every single morning, we're given that ultimatum. Am I going to live with my Yetzir Tov, my divine soul? And do what God wants. Do what the Torah says. Or am I going to live sin to my Yetzir Haram. My negative impulse. My animal soul. Am I going to do what's easy. What's comfortable. Am I going to do what's right. Or am I going to do what's comfortable. That option is placed before us. Nobody's forcing us. And we have the opportunity. To choose. It's placed before us. And we choose. The Torah is placed in front of us. And we have to actively learn it. We have to actively put in a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and time, and, and 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 to really understand it, and to really connect to it, and to really make meaning of it. It's not going to happen on its own. It's not going to happen by itself. That's why it says this is the Torah which Moses placed before the children of Israel, rather than just gave it to the children of Israel. It's not being spoon fed. We have to work. We have to work for this relationship with God. I'll conclude with a story. There was a rabbi named Rabbi Shalom Doivber of Lubavitch. He was, just to give the historical context, so you have the Lubavitcher Rebbe, you have his father-in-law, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Shnerson, who was known as the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. His father was Rabbi Shalom Doivber of Lubavitch, known as the Rashab. This is going back roughly 150 years ago. And he had a very close relationship with the Rebbe of the of the Hasidic group called Slanim, known as the Slanim Rebbe, because he was from the town of Slanim. 
there was many different Hasidic groups. There was Lubavitch, Chabad, but there was many, many others. And they had a very close relationship and they needed this relationship because there was a lot of activism and teaming up as far as um, thwarting off heretics, which was actually a big problem at the time due to the Enlightenment movement. You know, they had to really um, fight a lot of hostility and not just hostility, but a lot of antagonism toward Judaism and, and they would work together. The Slanim Rebbe sent uh, somebody to deliver a message to the Rebbe Rashad, to Rabbi Shalom Daibar. And because they were working together. And um, the, the Rebbe Rashab says to him, can you do me a favor? Can you share with me a teaching of your Rebbe, the Slanuma Rebbe? You want to learn something new from him? I got my own teachings, you know, but I want to learn something, you know, we have the Chabad perspective, but I want to see your perspective. I want to see your, I want to learn something new. So he says, I'll share with you a teaching. Parsha Va'era. Not to be confused with this week's Parsha, which is Parsha's Va'era. Parsha's Va'era is in the book of Exodus. Where it says, Va'era Hashem. Where God says, I've appeared. What's, what's, what's the exact text? I actually have it in the sitter here. Hold on. This is important for the story. Otherwise... So God says to Moses, Va'era el Avraham el Yitzchak ve'el Yaakov. I've appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in El Shaddai. Ushmi Hashem lo but I never let them know my name. They didn't know my name. They didn't get to know who I really am. As if to say, I'm going to appear to Moses on a whole different level. I'd appeared already to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what the Torah says. And what does Rashi comment on there? Rashi says, Rashi synthesizes for us, to the patriarchs, El Ha'avot, to the patriarchs. I'd appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what the Torah says. Rashi comments to the patriarchs. Now he says, let me ask you a question. What is that Rashi doing? How did Rashi add in our understanding? By the way, this is how you're supposed to learn Rashi. Analytically. What did this Rashi tell me that I didn't know? I know they're the patriarchs. Why does Rashi have to tell me that these are the patriarchs? I know that. So the Slanam Rebbe answered that we're translating the word avos as patriarchs, but that's not what the word avos really means. The word avos comes from the word ava, to desire, to pine. So when the Torah says, I'd appeared already to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Rashi comments, El Ha'avos, to those who pine. Why did God appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Because they desired God. They wanted God. Because they wanted it. We want God in our lives. We have to want it. It's there. But we have to want it. God places it in front of us. right? Moses placed it before the children of Israel. But if if we have to actively desire it and have to actively take it, it's not going to happen on its own. Whereas one of my rabbis used to say, I have good news and I have bad news, and they're both the same. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> we have free choice. And if we want it, it will happen. Okay, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>